0: From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. There are dozens of community conversations going on around the nation, motivated by a desire for racial reconciliation. They're happening in places of worship, in local government settings, often through book clubs, and even inside civic organizations. Rotary International recently updated its diversity, equity, and inclusion statement, first adopted in 2019. It begins with this line, at Rotary, we understand that cultivating a diverse, equitable, and inclusive culture is essential to realizing our vision of a world where people unite and take action to create lasting change. And the statement ends here. In line with our value of integrity, we are committed to being honest and transparent about where we are in our DEI journey as an organization and to continuing to learn and do better. The obvious implication, there's room to grow and there's plenty to learn. In Raleigh, one Rotarian, a white man, approached his friend, a black woman, and asked her to join him in creating a program that would foster understanding and bring black and white people closer through a planned curriculum and conversation. While it's not a Rotary initiative— Two Wilmington Rotarians went through the program and in 2020, they launched a local chapter of Our Stories, Brave Conversations on Race. These two co-facilitators are with me today to talk about the program, what they're learning, and what they see happening among the people who participate. Terry Everett, a native North Carolinian, retired from three and a half decades of federal government service as a senior executive, moved back to Wilmington in 2017. Terry Everett, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much, Rachel. Glad to be here. Really good to have you with us. Alan Quigley is the former co-owner of the Dixie Grill, a popular downtown Wilmington eatery. He is also a Rotary District Governor-elect. Alan Quigley, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much, Rachel. It's good
0: to be here. Good to have you with us. I want to start with this idea Um, that I know you've confronted, both of you, at some point, which is, oh, wait a minute, you guys are still talking about that? Why are we talking about that? Why are we still talking about race? So why are we talking about it, Terry Everett?
2: Um, We're talking about it because there are so many divides and – not in, only in Wilmington, but, you know, around the country. And so just having that conversation is very important to bringing people together, to having them understand each other. Um, our stories is not about agreement. Um, our stories is about just understanding different perspectives and maybe coming out with a different Uh, perspective on our citizens, fellow citizens in society. So um, we're having those conversations because um, they are a bonding tool. Conversation is so important. And when I talk about it, I usually um, bring up a a website that I I read, and it goes into deep detail about how important a conversation is, not only important, but uh, powerful. It's powerful uh, between two people. So, you know, if we have the chance, I'd like to read a couple of those because it really cements um, the basis for our stories and what we do.
0: Yes, I, I will give you a chance to read some of that. But first, Alan, why why did you want to get involved in this program?
1: That's a great question. Um, probably a number of reasons. Um, you know, I, th- <laughs> I was thinking about, uh, I thought you might ask me that. So I was thinking about... <laughs> If not me, who? Um, I think it's. I think it's very important that we learn to to understand each other. Um, and I don't. I. And I think we're not. We got a long way to go to get there. And having, um, I guess, growing up in a what I guess would be considered a privileged childhood and community, um, and trying to understand what. Where the, who's on the other side and what they're all about. Um, and I think this provided an opportunity for me to start that process, although I, I'm i sure I started that process a long time ago, but this was able to um, get me, I guess, in front of um, what I saw was an important topic and uh, wanted to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, and you actually, you you get kind of emotional about this. Mm-hmm. Why does it, why do you think it affects you on such a deep level?
1: I was afraid you're going to ask me that as well. <laughs> um, I think as it goes back to the uh, my upbringing and and the, the privilege that it was. Um, I think there's some, I don't know if I'd call it guilt, maybe of, of having that lifestyle that um, a lot of people uh, didn't have access to. And I think that's you know part of it's just me, I suppose. but I also see it as a, um, I don't know, it just resonates some somewhere with me deeper than I can even describe. And I just think that uh, it comes out it comes out for me, it comes out as emotion, whether it's tears or whatever it might be, but it comes out as an emotion,
0: yeah, yeah. And I have to say that Terry Everett is reaching out right now and and giving him an affirmative touch. The two of you co-facilitating this group, you've you've both also been through the program. And one of the elements of the program that you discuss is white privilege, which, Alan, you just right. mentioned as, as part of your upbringing. So I want to go to this clip from former NFL player, Emmanuel Acho, who has started a program called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And in his inaugural episode, he talks about some of the main questions he gets from his white friends, which is why he says he created this show in the first place. And in this clip, he explains what he would describe as white privilege.
3: You know, another question I get from my white friends, they ask me, why do you think white privilege exists? And I say this, if you and I were in a race, And the official at the start line, they held me back for the first 200 meters. And you had a 200 meter then head start. The only way to level out that race is to either stop you from running or put me on a golf cart and catch you up, and catch myself up. Well, you see, what we've done in America is we've simply said, okay, Emmanuel, you're now free to run. And we've acted as if it's a fair race. When in all honesty, black people were held back for hundreds of years. And so if in the late 1960s, we say, okay, black people, you can go now, that's not a fair race. LBJ, he said it best when he said, you can't shackle and chain someone for hundreds of years, liberate them to freely compete with the rest and still justly believe that you've been fair. So white privilege is, it's having a head start due to hundreds and hundreds of years of systematic and systemic racism. It's having a head start intrinsically built into your life. It's not saying your life hasn't been hard, but what it's saying is your skin color hasn't contributed to the difficulty in your life. I live in an affluent neighborhood in Austin, Texas, and if I ever go to my mailbox and I see a white woman walking up to the mailbox, I consciously sit in my car because I don't want her to feel like I'm a threat. If I'm on an elevator with a white person, I try to hit the button first and get off the elevator first because I don't want them to perceive me as a threat because I realize at any point in time, whiteness can be weaponized.
0: That was Emmanuel Acho from his program, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, which uh, is part of a program. You use that content in your program, Our Stories, Brave Conversations on Race you're listening to coastline. So let's talk a little bit about how Emmanuel Acho described white privilege and the weaponizing of whiteness. Terry Everett, can you talk about how you introduce the idea of white privilege to your your cohorts as they go through this program?
2: Um it's actually, excuse me, it's actually introduced in our materials. Um, It's introduced as one of the definitions that we use, and uh, definitions are obviously very important so that everybody is on the same page. Um, We talk about it um, as um, one of the reading materials, one of the homework materials, and I introduce it from a standpoint of what did you think about that video? And each participant will um, then talk about how they felt, how it made them feel, um, what kind of reaction they had to it. Um, so that's basically how it's introduced from a standpoint of homework, if you want to call it that. Um, and, and
0: we just allow people to express their, um, their thoughts. It's interesting that you ask people how they feel about it, because I can I imagine there's probably a difference between how someone reacts intellectually to a concept or a definition and how, how they feel about it. It seems like it would take a deeper level of vulnerability to get to that before, say, the resistance that they might have towards the idea of white privilege. Hmm. How, how do you help people kind of navigate do you, do you differentiate between the intellect and the viscera as you're going through this process?
2: I don't think, um, and Alan, you can weigh in here, I don't think we uh, make a diff- distinction between the two. Um, we don't interject anything. You know, it's basically the participants um, sharing their feeling and relating their life stories as it relates to, to um, whatever the homework is, you know, just like Alan did. Um, so, so our job is to sit back and let them um, explore those things whether, before they read it, I mean, before they come to the session and during the session. You know, our job is not to um, actually direct them in one way or the other. It's just to let them express their lived experiences surrounding this and their thoughts about how they feel about it.
0: You're listening to Coastline. It's a look at a local effort to have brave conversations about race with co-facilitators Terry Everett and Alan Quigley. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Terry Everett and Alan Quigley are leading a local chapter of Our Stories, Brave Conversations on Race, which brings 10 people together at a time with different backgrounds and genders. The aim of the program is to foster understanding and perhaps even lasting friendships. But you start with terms and definitions, which sounds really dry, but Mm -hmm. some of these, some of these concepts and terms actually must spark certain, uh, I would imagine, pretty intense conversations. And just before we went to break, we heard Emmanuel Acho talk about how he defines white privilege, what it looks like to him uh, in his program, Uncomfortable Conversations with the Black Man. And Alan Quigley, your understanding of your own white privilege has been an evolution of sorts.
1: I would, yes, I would say so. I, I, to go back a little bit further, I guess, um, I did go to, uh, I grew up in a very white neighborhood, but I did go to an integrated high school and I was an athlete. So, you know, in that case, you're playing with people of all races and types. So you do um, get to have actually created some friendships across those racial borders, but we lived in a different part of town. and then on to college, it was kind of more of the white environment, to be honest with you. Um, and then getting in the corporate world, it was fairly a white environment. So that was, you know, that's kind of been my professional experience since then in living in white neighborhoods and having all the the, the luxuries, I guess you could say. Um, but there's there's always that piece there that says. Um, We've got to. We've got to. It's got to be different than this. It needs to be different than this. So you know, the evolution, I guess, is starting to understand where those differences are. Uh, going out of your way to 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 get to know people that don't live in your neighborhood, that don't look like you. And um, it's a. It's not an easy process. It's it's a, it's um, takes some courage, I think, from both both sides, if you will. And it takes it takes a while and I think that's part of why we're still talking about it because it is a long process um, And sometimes you wonder if we've made any progress uh, But I i I've, we have to feel like we have and I, and I think we have and I think this program Is doing that the feedback we get from people who participate is this has been just an amazing experience uh, We had a woman, you know recently in a group that said, you know, I look I go through my week and this is the the one time of the week I really look forward to because I want to have this discussion and I want to I want to learn about those people on the other side of the room or the other side of the Zoom call. Um, So we get that kind of feedback and it it really it it says that, yeah we are making progress. It's one person at a time. But, you know, that's okay.
0: Yeah, it's okay. And the two of you. So you're co-facilitators of the local program, but you had to go through the program yourself. Before you could become facilitators, Terry Everett, did you learn anything going through this program that you didn't know before? Because coming at this from a a white perspective, it seems to me like most of the learning curve would would be among white people. is Is that the case or not? Um,
2: <clears throat> no, it's it's not the case. I mean, I, I learned quite a bit um, some of the, I guess, misperceptions that I held, um, as a child, um, and, and later on, just based on my, um, lived experiences, um, I, I was able to dis- dis- dispel those, um, and...
0: Can you give us an example? Of I knew you were mis- going to ask that. <laughs> um,
2: I, I guess, you know, just, just, understanding or thinking, growing up in North Carolina um, in the segregated South in the 50s, um, I always had this perception that um, white people um, did not want us, uh, st- all white people, I guess. You know, I had that um, stereotype, I guess, uh, that all white people um, were against black people just because of my experience in a segregated society. Um, I was just so heartened to learn that there were so many um, people from other cultures, white people, uh, others who um, shared, you know our our vision in terms of being equal. So um, that's not a very specific example, but uh, a lot of it was heartfelt. A lot of it was bonding and understanding, um, the other person's perspective in in the cohort um, it's like you know oh I didn't really think that you would think like that um, so so it was a, an awakening I guess for me I, that's a bad word <laughs> to use <laughs> in, in this environment but um, you know just some of the things that I thought were were dispelled um, and I think it worked it works both ways. Um, works both
0: ways. What are, can you talk about some of the other, with your cohorts, and I know part of the, the principle here is confidentiality, so we don't want to identify anybody, and we don't want to tell any stories that might inadvertently identify somebody, but can you talk about some light bulbs that you've seen go on for people, or some moments in conversation when you've gone, ah, there's a door opening there?
2: One that comes to mind specifically for me is um, a couple people who were afraid to go to a certain part of town, uh, Wilmington, and then someone else suggested that we go to dinner at a restaurant in that part of town. Um, And the person said, you know, I avoid that at all costs. Um, That group got together and we went to dinner at that uh, restaurant. And... um, I don't know what we, we had a good time. The food was good. And it created a bond and hopefully um, an attitude of, yes, I can go here. And, you know, I don't have to be afraid to go in this part of town. So that was a real good moment for me in terms of people coming together and forming friendships. Um, that's what happens in each of the cohorts. You know, we've heard people say that but for our stories, they would not have formed um, a relationship or a friendship with anyone outside of their um, immediate circles. Um, so that Christmas party uh, holiday parties, I'm sorry, holiday parties were always um, you know, of the same from the same group of people. Um, some of our cohort uh, participants have invited some of their participants from the, the sessions to their holiday parties or other events. And so those are the kinds of things that, uh, we are fostering and what this program, part of what this program is all about, to, to come out of that um, session, not just retreating back into our respective uh, corners or homes, uh, but just inviting other people into the fold and, um, you know, being truthful and serious about it. And that has happened and that continues to happen. So um,
0: that's, that's, that's what it's all about. Helen Quigley, are there any moments that you've observed in the process where you've thought, ooh, that's what this is all about? That was an opening.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the, in the cohort themselves, what we find is the first couple weeks are, you know, we're st- still trying to get to know each other. And I think it's interesting. I know for me it was the same, and I think other people as well. Week three or four kind of is the point where things start to change. It's the homework. It's the the questions that we we kind of work through um, with our facilitators. And I think that's you know, that's the the light bulb starts going on. You say, oh, okay, I get it now. I'm starting to really get into the discussion because I know that person. It's a safe environment. I feel like I can be open about how I feel about these things. And so, I you know, I don't know if it's one specific thing, but I think it does kind of evolve over the course of the six weeks. But I want to piggyback on what Terry said, because the thing that um, we have learned is at the end of that at the six week point, we get together and we say, OK, what did, what do you want to do next? And we so I have a list of things they can do. They can find buddies to do things with. They can go to coffee, join a book club, whatever it might be. But the uh, the thing that's been the most powerful is we get together socially, whether it's a tour of uh, the Cameron Art Museum, as Terry said, a holiday party. We had a spectrum media wanted to do a, a segment on our program. So we assembled 10 people at my house and we had computers all over the house so we could all be on a Zoom call so we could simulate a Zoom call. And uh, it was so much fun. And she was you know, videotaping us. The best part, though, was afterwards we had actually all of us sat around. I had a glass of wine and we were in my kitchen and um, we have I told Alexa to play something. I don't remember what I told her to play. <laughs> but and one of the guys in the, in the group said, um, no, we got to play Motown. So we turned on a couple of Motown songs and of course all of us a lot of us are of that 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. maybe you know, or Thank you. 60s. Um, <laughs> so we're playing Motown music in my kitchen and we start dancing. So there's a group of us are having a great time. Yeah. We never, you know, we never would have done that if if it hadn't been for this.
0: That's what this yeah. is about. I've, so I so I mentioned in the intro that There are attempts at these conversations to bridge these divides going on all throughout our culture. And they've been going on for decades as well. I mean, uh, George Floyd was a particular uh, tragic milestone. But long before that, this has been going on. And I I heard a woman say once in one of these discussions, it was a, a book club organized with churches, uh, black churches and white churches, getting together to discuss this book, America's Original Sin. And this one woman said, you know, I remember back in the 1970s when we were doing this, and nothing ever changes. And what you're doing is finding that sort of like the, the touchstone piece, which is the friendships, that's what hasn't come out of these other programs. Those actual, authentic personal relationships where people cross paths (laughs) because they want to, not because it's part of a structured program necessarily. And that's been the piece that's been missing, it seems, Terry Everett. I think
2: so. Um, You know, having been in the federal government every year, we had to take... Um, classes, you know, you check the box. Um, I've gone to many classes where, you know, I joined with people from different backgrounds, and you know, we're gonna we're gonna uh, keep in touch. Nobody ever does. We go back to our own worlds. And are you, you know, talking about like corporate diversity corporate classes? Di- yes, yes, yeah. and um, you know, and other classes as well. And and we we don't keep in touch. You know, I. Um, graduated well went through a program the uh, national uh, defense university which is predominantly military and you know we that's one example where we all said we would keep in touch but but we didn't this this course uh, or program is one where we foster it's a deliberate intentional uh, action plan to do that Um, i think alan mentioned the holiday party um, at my house and one of the participants organized it come on let's go get on the stairs and take a picture and um someone broke out in song and a christmas a, crack, a carol and we just started singing and it was just so i i use heartening a lot uh because that it does you know touch my heart and so things like that just happen spontaneously and um that and was a that
0: was a really profound moment. It was. For, for all of you. That was, was a it was a like a transcendent it was moment.
2: It really was. And so, um, you know, so these things, you know, except for our stories um, in in the format and program that we use, um, <clears throat> we 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 foster these intentionally, and we check on people. We have accountability buddies, as as Alan said. <clears throat> so it's it's designed to form bonds. it's We don't force the bonds. They just happen naturally.
0: I want to go back to this idea of terms and concepts that is part of the, the early part of the program. Microaggressions is, is one of the terms that you bring up as important to define and discuss. What, what does that mean in the context of this program,
1: Alan Quigley? Um, that's a great question. Uh, uh, there's a lot of terms that we go through, and the, the purpose is so that everybody kind of is on the same page as far as what their understanding of those terms is. And there's some discussion about that, potentially. Um, you know, do you all agree that that makes sense? Um, you know, just the definition of, of racism is, um, has different meanings for different people. And so we actually spent quite a bit of time talking about that. Um, as far as microaggression specifically, I'm not sure I could, I don't know if I could tell you the specifics on that other than, um, you know, we we try to understand what that does mean and that there are things that we do that we don't even realize we're doing. And I say we, and I don't mean whether it's whatever race it is, we we all have those little things that come from our upbringing or, you know, whatever group we, we hang out in um, that we don't even realize. And I think that's That's probably one of the the, one of the things I learned about myself. And I think a lot of people in a group did is, oh, yeah, I never thought about that. I I didn't realize if I said that it could it could uh, mean this. And someone might be offended by what I'm saying when I I didn't mean to offend Mm -hmm. anybody. But the, the important thing is that you make those mistakes. And you learn from it. You say, "Oh, yeah, okay. I'm not going to do that next time." Or the group, even you know, we kind of find that we can even ask, "Hey, is it okay to say this? Does it offend you if I say this?" And and um, so there's things like that that happen along the way. You know, just kind of
0: you're listening sorry. to Coastline. You guys also sorry. talk about. I did. You also talk about white fragility. And you talk about the woman who wrote the book, Robin DiAngelo, and how she defines it. Um, And I noticed on some of your materials, you also refer to John McWhorter, who writes for The Atlantic. He also teaches linguistics at Columbia University. He hosts a podcast called Lexicon Valley. He also happens to be Black. And he just flattens the idea of um, of white fragility across the board, and he all, he calls it, you know, basically infantilizing black people. So, for our listeners, can we, who may not have read the Robin DiAngelo book, and I've referred to it on this program quite a bit, uh, can you talk about white fragility, Terry Everett, and and just how you would define that in the context of your group?
2: Um, I'm not sure I can. I'll def- I can define it in accordance with, um, you know, the, the, the homework, the materials. And um, from, from those materials, it's just uh, a defensiveness um, and inability to accept that there have been wrongs. Um, and to, um, you know, every time someone says, I've been wronged, it's like, well, I've been wronged as well. You know, and so it just marginalizes the other person's uh, thoughts um, and and um, experiences. <clears throat> so that's that's my understanding um, of what that means. And um, and we just get again, I'll go back. We get opinions uh, from the from everybody. Some um, believe that we should not use that. We haven't had very many, but people have different opinions and they're allowed to express those. Um, but, you know, just a, a basic defensiveness when someone says, um, you know, well, th- th- this, has been, this has been happening uh, for um, hundreds of years. It's like, well, I've had wrongs too. So that's, that's my interpretation of it. Um.
0: This is so interesting that you, so people are going through this curriculum but you guys, as the co-facilitators, are not saying you need to learn what white fragility is and accept that you're white and fragile, <laughs> or you're being defensive. Or I mean, you just allow for the discussion of these ideas, and no one has to agree. Right. 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 In fact, we, as facilitators, we don't say that much at all. Um,
2: you know, we introduce the concepts. We um, have everybody introduce themselves. And then basically it's just people reading the material and having their own discussion. Um, or not. You know, we don't force them to, to talk if they don't want to. Everybody has. But.
1: It's really all about lived experiences. You know, that's really the purpose. The homework, the, all the things that go around that um, are to get the conversation going.
0: You're listening to Coastline. Alan Quigley and Terry Everett, co-facilitators of Our Stories, Brave Conversations on Race, are my guests today. Stay with us. We'll be back after this short break. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Although it's not an official Rotary program, it was a couple of Wilmington Rotarians who, in 2021, launched a local chapter of Our Stories, Brave Conversations on Race. Since then, friendships among people whose paths might never have crossed have sprung up. And the leaders of this local effort, Terry Everett and Alan Quigley, are with me today to explore what is working about this program, what the challenges are, and, and why, unlike some other efforts at racial reconciliation, friendships seem to form from this program. And Terry Everett, you brought in some material from uh, a website that talks about conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about what this, what this blog is and then go ahead and read from it?
2: Um, yes, I'll give credit to the, um, the website itself. It's AwkwardSilence.com. It's an Australian um, blog, but it's so uh, germane to everything that we're doing and, and relationships in general. So I'll just read a, a few of them. Conversation is so valuable, yet so undervalued. Conversation creates connection. By connecting with others, you become bigger than yourself. Conversation is the lifeblood of relationships. Conversation is necessary for communication. When people don't talk, they invent speculation that isn't there. People jump to assumptions because they aren't on the same page. Conversation shares information and sparks ideas and creates synergy. You know, we get very good ideas from uh, just talking with people, whether it's in a personal relationship, a family relationship, or a work relationship, or in our stories. And, and that's what we've um, tried to create. So those are some of the things that um, I always try to bring out because conversation is so powerful. Within conversation, um, you know, we have to have the mutual understanding and clearness of what it is we're talking about. And that doesn't always happen today when people um, start talking. So um, it's, it's an important tool for, for bonding. And you know I really
0: like um, some of the things that they say in this. Yeah, those are some powerful ideas. Mm. And we, we had talked earlier about the fact that you don't, as part of this program, require people to adhere to certain concepts like white fragility or even white privilege, who just discuss them and allow people to have their own thoughts about them. I can see why offering that space to people, that sort of intellectual freedom, freedom of opinion, would foster an environment of bonding because you're making it a safe space for everybody. But Alan Quigley, are there moments when you've heard people say something and you just wanna be like, no buddy, that's not, that's not how it goes, that's not right. I mean, have you had to kind of rein yourself in?
1: I would say so. Uh, There's a couple instances where you, you would like to interject, but, um, but it's not about that, it's not about me. It's about their what's coming from them, um, because it's pretty authentic. And so we just have to listen. And I think that's the other part of mm-hmm. having a conversation is being able to listen and respect what's being said. Whether you agree with it or not, it, it's not important. It's that person's experience and that, what, that's what we're trying to understand. So I really value the listening part. Conversation is part of it. It's, listening is part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. But it's got to be a, a, real, it's a real important part of having that conversation.
0: Do you guys ever talk about cancel culture in this program? Because I've been thinking about this a lot lately and talking with people about the whole idea of, um, you know, so wokeness came along. And for for liberal folks who accept the idea of wokeness as a positive movement— it's about being more sensitive to people that they may not have understood previously or known, uh, understood issues or or been sensitive to ways they behave that affect people in a certain way. Uh, of course, on the other side of the coin, wokeness implies like such extreme political correctness that none of us can be ourselves anymore. But there are people sort of caught, I think, in this gap who want to learn, want to learn about other people. And they're so afraid to say anything. Yeah. Because if they say the wrong thing, they're out. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Alan,
1: how do mm. you? The, the, the good news, I guess it's, I think it's, yeah, it's good news, is we've had very little bit of that, if any. Um, there's, I think part of that, and, and this is maybe the, the piece that we, we would like to expand, is we tend to have, we tend to be in the same echo chamber within our group. We get the same, you know, politically, we're probably all fairly well aligned or aligned, maybe well aligned is not the right word. Um, But we always say, I I really want to understand what someone else is thinking about this topic. But we can't, we've had a real hard time getting those other perspectives into our discussion. And I think, you know, we would love to find people who are willing to sit and talk to us about tough topics so we can listen and hear what they have to say and they can listen to us again it's not about changing anybody's mind it's about us trying to understand so we listen and we have the conversation and understand where they're coming from and that's i guess it's one of our bigger challenges i think is finding finding folks who are willing to have that part of the conversation with us
0: well let's talk about the folks that you have in the program and the folks that you would like to have in the program terry everett it's a it's It started as a conversation among black people and white people, but you guys want to expand this to all kinds of backgrounds. Is that right? what We or did it not start that way?
2: I mean, well, the terminology was people of color, people who okay. aren't from different um backgrounds or cultures um and that's that's the way I would couch it um because there are so many people who um, need to be brought into the folds just to understand each other. As, as, as humans, you know, we're all part of humanity. And, and um, my belief is that we have a lot more in common than we have differences. And so just being, bringing people together and, and understanding that, and whether it's um, someone who is um, disabled in a wheelchair or someone who uh, comes from a background uh, that's not like mine. I want I want to understand that and understand what they're going through and 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 how they um, might contribute to my better understanding of who they are and their lived experiences. And and that's that's just the key word um, that I look for. So it is um, actually you know something that we can. And I'm reluctant to say we're expanding it because, you know, we are a chapter. And so um, we're trying to stay true to the original intent of um, our Raleigh uh, founders. Um, So we want to bring people in who have different uh, lived experiences and to share those experiences. And um, that's the whole gist of the program. Um, expanding it to others is something that um, you know I would like to see um, because uh, again there are just so many people um, who who we need to understand, and um, so
0: yeah. In one episode of uncomfortable conversations with a black man, hosted by former NFL player Emmanuel Acho, mm-hmm. and part of the homework that you guys assign for our stories, Brave Conversations on Race. And I want to say Emmanuel Acho talks with all kinds of different people in his series, Black and White, including white actor Matthew McConaughey, white comedian Chelsea Handler, white NFL commissioner Roger Goodell. And in this episode, uh, he's talking with an all-white or majority-white police department in Petaluma, California. So let's listen.
3: Let's get uncomfortable. Ryan, when was the last time you had black people over at your house for dinner? Well, before COVID, I can tell you that. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I I, I can't tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I'd ask you the same question. Well, like, when was the last time you you sat down just to have a conversation uh, with a group of black people, Garrett? I can be
1: honest with you. I I don't know that I've ever had a conversation with a group
3: of black people. Yeah, I would say that proximity breeds care and distance breeds fear. Proximity breeds care and distance breeds fear. And I think one of the issues in our society is there's not enough proximity between people who don't look like each other.
0: Emmanuel Otto is the host of Uncomfortable Conversations with a black man and in that particular clip he was talking with the police department of petaluma california now why doesn't ryan the first guy just say i've never had a black person over to my house hang on i'm going to ask you to react to that in a moment you're listening to coastline so, yeah. well, right. Alan, why doesn't – you can see him squirming uh-huh. in this video. Yeah, yeah. And my, I don't know. I don't know guilt. this guy. <laughs> yeah. I d- so don't know for a fact. Yeah, yeah. But it sure but, looks to me like he's never had a black person over to his house ever yeah, in his life. Yeah. And he can't just say it. Yeah.
1: right. Well, that's the problem. He just can't say it because we, we have a hard time admitting that – not that we're racist, but that we just don't have relationships with people that don't look like us. And um
0: do you see people admitting hard things in in this program Terry Everett I mean have you you must have witnessed some moments of real vulnerability
2: Um we actually have um, I have seen people who have uh, talked about their childhood experience and um how parents or other relatives um you know, have explained away um, racism or segregation. And um, while I haven't seen, I, I've seen emotion, an emotional response to that um, in one of the cohorts. And, um, you know, it's, it's very painful for all of us. Uh, but one of the things that we've <clears throat> tried to do, um, everyone in the, those instances, everyone has shown that they're supportive and it's one of the tenets of the program to show that um, we're here for you. And so people have felt safe um, in a secure environment where they can have that vulnerability. Um, so, so, yes, uh, I've seen it. And part of it has been my own, you know, uh, catharsis, um, having <clears throat> grown up in a segregated society, not, not allowing that to define me. And not walking around, um, you know, like uh, like a victim, but being cognizant of it and and coming to realize that um, that was a those were moments that I lived, uh, but didn't let define me. And so it, it was a recognition that um, that I had had experienced that I had put it in, in the back of my mind. You know, you you can't walk around and succeed at work with um, something like that, you know, in the forefront of your mind. So I had sort of subordinated it, but to just actually talk about those experiences and how they shaped my thoughts and how I uh, tried hard not to let them, you know, define who I am. Um, so so yes, uh, we've all had, um, many of us rather, have had those um, moments where we were vulnerable and it brought us back. As a facilitator, I actually couldn't say anything, but, you know.
1: Yeah. You know, I, can yeah. I add something to that, Rachel? Because I think it's important. I, I, you know, that police officer may have felt guilty or I don't, know, I don't know what he felt and I maybe shouldn't have assumed he felt a certain way. Um, and I, it's not unusual that we haven't had someone of a different color to our homes for whatever reason. And I think that's true of, of anyone. Um, who doesn't? You know, if they don't, if you're, you 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 live in a neighborhood, you are friends with the people in your neighborhood. Typically, I think, And we talk about church being the most segregated hour on you know most segregated hours on Sunday, when we all go our separate ways for church. Um, but I, I don't, you know, I, didn't, I don't, I don't mean to to throw guilt in there, um, and I don't mean to say that everyone in our organization, everyone who's been through our program, is having each over each other over for lunch or dinner or having drinks together, whatever it might be. Because it's, it's a very intentional thing because we do, you know, we have our lives. We go in our directions that are comfortable for us. So it's got to be real intentional to make that shift. And it's not an easy thing to do. No. Um, so I think, you know, this. The, the, the beauty of this program is it maybe gets that started, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen for everyone. Right. But that's okay because you're learning. you're learning about yourself, you're learning about what's going on in the community. and to be honest with you, um, there are parts of the community that are very happy where they are and doing what they're doing. I don't care what part is, but we all want to have equal access to everything that's available. And I think that's the piece, and that's that's part of the discussion you I think you're talking about earlier is how do we get everyone equal access so that we can all, have the same benefits. And that's what Emmanuel Acho was saying about the race that he wants to run. He wants everybody to start at the, the start line and not uh, a certain group have a 20 yard hit start.
0: So we, we are definitely going to include links and contact information for you guys if anyone listening wants to join. We have less than a minute left. An action plan is part of what people come out of the program with. What are some ideas for those folks who aren't gonna go through a cohort with you can you offer some ideas for an action plan?
1: Um, we have a a library of books and videos and things like that that uh, people can access and and learn on their own. I mean, there, you know, well, we all know there's just so many phenomenal books out there, um, and there's you know there's more and more documentaries available. So it's just, you know, it's just taking the time to go find them and, and listen to them or read them, you know. it's uh, But they're they're out there. We have a list of them, and we're more than happy to to share that, obviously. Um, and we'll put some of those on our website as
0: resources. That's this edition of Coastline. Alan Quigley, Terry Everett, thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. Find us at WHQR's Coastline hosted by. Find the episode at WHQR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.